So our passage this morning is Luke chapter 13. We are going through the book of Luke. We started back in chapter 1. We're up to chapter 13. And we're looking at verses 18 to 21. And I'll, I'll just read it to you. He was saying to his disciples, What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a mustard seed which a man took and threw into his own garden. And it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. If you're just randomly reading your Bible and you happen to open it up and turn to this passage, you may be scratching your head kind of going, Oh, it's all interesting. I mean, it's Jesus. He sometimes says interesting things. Um, exactly what does this passage have to do with us and what, what? Okay. We're going to take this morning and we're going to look, and I hope by the time we're done, you're going to look at this as a precious passage and glad that we went through it today and that your understanding of it will hopefully enhance who you are as a believer. The kingdom of God is the question. Which is what Jesus is saying. What is the kingdom of God like? It's an important question for us to ask ourselves this very day. To what do we think the kingdom of God is like? Now, if you'd have asked one of the disciples at the time Jesus made this statement, at the time Jesus gave this parable, in the book of Luke, at this moment, he's on his way to the cross. It's not that far. It's a few weeks, maybe a month or two in his future. Uh, He's towards the end of his ministry. If you'd have looked at the disciples and you'd have said to them, so what is the kingdom of God? I suspect the conversation might have been something like, well, you know, we're still not really sure. Um, I mean, Jesus says he's the king of the kingdom of God, but, you know, we're still working on trying to figure this out. We're still trying to really put the pieces together because, you know, any kingdom we know of, there's... There's a castle somewhere. There's a palace. There's, I don't know, there's there's pomp and circumstance. And you're supposed to have armies and thrones. And we we, we don't seem to have any of that stuff. Um, Jesus doesn't seem to wear royal robes or have any grand processions. There's no heralds. There's no ambassadors. Um, As a kingdom, we're kind of confused ourselves. uh, Because... We're waiting for Jesus to, I don't know, somehow pull out some magical sword and, you know, destroy the Romans and set up a kingdom. I mean, we're waiting. We went through those whole time in Galilee, and I got to say, by the time we're all done that, that didn't really work. Uh, We're down now in here near Jerusalem, and Jesus just got done. Healing a woman who was bowed over for 18 years. He helped her finally stand up straight and the synagogue official condemned him. In fact, the people are all talking about how the miracles, which which we're doing as well, that haven't, even the Old Testament prophets didn't do some of the miracles we're doing. And the conclusion of the people is that we're just operating by the power of the devil. The disciples would be kind of like, I don't know, kingdom of God, I, 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 boy, just, we are really confused about this. We are just not sure exactly what the kingdom of God is. It's not like any kind of kingdom we've ever seen. And Jesus, if he's a king, is not like any kind of king we've ever 
seen. No armies, no wealth, no royalty. No, I don't know. That doesn't, just doesn't seem to be happening by any outward appearance. Of course, we know the rest of the story. They may have, and I suspect they were secretly in their hearts, still hoping that that moment was going to come, that Jesus was going to throw off this, this facade of meekness and mildness and was you know, going to raise up and... Surely, at any moment, the, the radiance is going to burst forth. And I, I think they thought that. We, of course, know the whole story. And that actually doesn't, that doesn't happen. When Jesus stands before Pilate and Pilate says to him, are you a king? He's like, let me tell you, my kingdom is not of this world. That's what he actually says. And he allows the Romans to beat him, to humiliate him, and to crucify him. Just like they did to all of the rebels who tried to rebel against the Roman Empire. So they did to Jesus. And he doesn't resist them. He doesn't fight them. He allows himself to be crucified. There is no big surprise moment where suddenly he raises up. It it doesn't happen. And when he is crucified, the 11 scatter is run for the hills. They, they, they're terrified now. I mean, Jesus says. So what is going to happen to the body of Jesus, by the way? Because once you die, part of crucifixion, part of the, part of the entire humiliation of being crucified was that they took your body and they just threw you in Gehenna, which is the burning, fiery trash pit at the end of the Kidron Valley, they threw your body up onto the burning trash so that you became part of the anonymous grave down there. And apparently, apparently, the disciples are like, well, I don't know what's going to go get the body. Nicodemus, who I don't know that any of these guys even really knew who Nicodemus was, goes to Pilate and says, I begged the body, and he put Jesus in a tomb. Otherwise, the disciples would have <laughs> stood back, I suspect, and just watched him get tossed with the rest of the criminals. I don't think they had any plans otherwise. So if this is Jesus, no army, no money, no, is this the kingdom of God? Is this the king? Is this the king of the kingdom of God? Is this what the kingdom of God is like? Is this the kingdom that we want to be part of? Because I think we have our own view of what we think the kingdom of God ought to be like, right? We think that, while well, we serve the king, and so righteousness ought to prevail. I mean, in, the, in, in our confrontations with the world, as we get out here and we do our battle with the world, righteousness should, should get better and wickedness should be taken care of. We're supposed to be on the winning side here, after all, right? Uh, we don't want to just know we're on the winning side. We want to actually win once in a while. We want the kingdom to actually work. What exactly do you expect when you think about the kingdom of God? We'll get to in a moment whether or not you even think you're in the kingdom of God. We'll, we'll talk about that in just a second. You know, you would think that if God was building a kingdom, like we think about a kingdom, that, you know, if the kingdom of God is going to conquer the entire world, you'd have to think we'd at least hold on to some territory, Right? Uh, you may recall that in the last couple of centuries, England was one of the great missionary nations on earth. Uh, they sent out just, just amazing missionaries. You know, Carey and 
uh, Livingston and Hudson Taylor, who went out and started the China Inland Mission, uh, they sent missionaries out into all of the world out there. George Mueller, uh, you know, these guys were from the, the continent, and, they, and many others went out. Of course, if you're paying any attention now, we're, we're now sending missionaries over to the European continent and to England to see if we can actually preach the gospel to some of them because they've now completely lost it. If you're paying any attention at all, there are denominations in this country that sent missionaries out into the world the last couple of centuries, and those denominations would love nothing more here in America to take a radical left-hand turn and to head off into just liberal la-la land and come to find out when they hold their world convention, it's not the American churches. It's the churches they've started in other nations that are all like, oh no, we're not going there. We're not going there. Those nations are now the moral authority, not this nation. And yet, we were the ones that sent out the missionaries. So, when we come to the question, and it's an important question, what is the kingdom of God like? What are we supposed to expect here in the kingdom of God? Is this going to just conquer nation after nation after nation until it conquers the whole world? Is that, and, and what does that look like? Matthew, by the way, will use the term kingdom of heaven, which is because Matthew is speaking to the Jews and the Jews have a thing about the word of God, the name God. They tend to not say it. So he'll say the kingdom of heaven, but it's the exact same kingdom. There's, there's no distinction. So let's take a moment and let's actually look at the kingdom of God, the, the kingdom, the, the ruling of God. So we'll start back in the Old Testament. We'll look at a, a few passages back there. In 2 Samuel uh, verse, uh, chapter 7, we see the promise made to David. So the prophet says to David, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, God says to him, I will raise up your descendant, singular, after you, who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay, so there's the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. It's on the throne of David, and it's a kingdom that will last forever. The psalmist will write, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. God's throne is forever. This is the kingdom of God. It's forever. Nebuchadnezzar, you will recall, had this dream in the book of Daniel. And in the dream, he saw this huge image. And the image had the four major world powers. And then at the end... At the bottom of the feet, there's a a kingdom that arises that is made of mixed of iron and uh, clay. And so it has both the strength and the weakness. And then God will send a huge piece of stone out of a mountain, not cut with hands. It won't be carved. It's just like a natural huge rock. It will come along and it will smash the image, which are all of the world powers, and will destroy them all. Daniel 2.44, in those days, the king's... The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And the kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all of these kingdoms. But it will itself endure forever. The kingdom of God is going to show up. It's going to crush all of the kingdoms. And it itself is going to endure forever. A little further on in the book of Daniel, we read about the 70 weeks of Daniel and the Antichrist. And we get to the end of the 70 weeks. And the Antichrist, verse, chapter 7, verse 25, he will speak out against the Most High. Uh, 
and will wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in times and laws. And they'll be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heavens will be given over to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. And all dominions will serve and obey him. So, if you're an Israelite in the first century, and you've got your Old Testament, and you're reading it, and you're reading about the kingdom of God, and this is what the kingdom of God is, it's the throne of David, it's this kingdom that Daniel talks about, when John the Baptist shows up and preaches, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, oh, okay, can hardly wait. And then Jesus is baptized by him, and Jesus goes out and says the exact same thing. Jesus preaches the exact same message. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of God is at hand. Any minute now, Jesus is going to overthrow the Romans and set up his kingdom. This is exactly what they expect. That's what they're waiting for. Which, by the way... When the moment comes that they finally get around to shouting, crucify him. One of the reasons why they'll shout that is because this expectation remains unfulfilled. At the moment they think he's supposed to do this, they're like, what kind of Messiah is this guy? What, what kind of king is this? I mean, look, what he let the Romans beat him. And, and now they're going to crucify him. Get rid of him. Get him out of here. He doesn't meet our political ambitions. Of course, if they'd paid attention to what Jesus actually said, they would have recognized that the kingdom Jesus was talking about is a little different than the kingdom they're thinking about. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus starts out with, and you all could probably quote this, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Wait, the kingdom of heaven is the poor in spirit? Doesn't sound like much of the armies and fighting and overthrowing the Romans. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Hmm. What kind of kingdom is this? Those who are humble, those who are persecuted, that's who get the kingdom. When Jesus prays and says, all right, this is, I'm going to give you a model prayer on how to pray. You know, our Father which art in heaven, right? He gets down to, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're to pray that. Well, wait a minute, aren't you the king? Isn't that just going to happen? Why are we praying that? Well, because it hasn't happened yet. It's a model prayer, and, and we should pray that way. Jesus will say to them, you know, many will come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south, and they will make it into the kingdom of heaven. But speaking to Israel, you descendants of Abraham, you will be cast outside where there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. If they'd have just paid attention, they'd have thought, wow, this kingdom is not the kingdom we were looking for. Jesus will say to the disciples, I speak to them in parables so that seeing they will not see and hearing they will not hear. But to you, I offer the mysteries. I explain to you. The mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Not to them. So he speaks to them in parables. And Matthew 13, which we're not going through Matthew, but in Matthew 13, these exact two parables we're going through today occur in Matthew 13. So maybe you're wondering if the kingdom is, maybe you're thinking, well, the kingdom was for Israel and we're the church. So maybe the kingdom isn't really what we're supposed to be looking for anyway, because, you know, it's not till the millennium, right? I, Maybe after Jesus comes back, that's when the kingdom actually gets going. So maybe we should just look at the gospel and think this doesn't really apply to us anyway. Maybe we shouldn't. 
maybe we should look at what the passage actually says. Uh, Jesus is going to tell Peter in Matthew 16, I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Uh, I don't want to steal too many sermons from Luke, but Luke 17, 20. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of heaven was coming, you've been preaching this whole time about the kingdom of heaven, he answered and said to them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And he might as well have said right now, that's what's implied in the Greek. The kingdom of heaven is already here. It's in your midst. As he gets even closer to Jerusalem, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. These are his own disciples. Like, okay, we're getting near Jerusalem. This is it. Elijah's going to come riding down in a fiery chariot. I mean, you know, here, here comes the moment. Jesus gives this parable. You know, the nobleman went away for a long time and, and then he comes back. Why? Because that's not how the kingdom is going to show up. So do we need to be members of the kingdom? Are we members of the kingdom? Does this have anything to do with the church age? Well, Jesus says to Nicodemus, what? You must be born again, right? And in fact, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. After the resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciples. This is after the resurrection now. I mean, there's no doubt that we are now moving into the church age. And what does he talk to them about? Well, in Acts 1, he presents himself alive after many infallible proofs and appears to them over a period of 40 days, speaking to them concerning things about what? The kingdom of God. As the book of Acts proceeds, Acts chapter 8, verse 12, when they believe the preaching of Philip, we're definitely into the church age here, the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. In Acts 14, a little further in, this is Paul now, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts 19, he enters, Paul enters the synagogue and continues speaking boldly for about three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. This is the church age. This is the gospel. This is what we preach. At the end of the book of Acts, Paul set aside a day and they came to him in his lodging in large numbers and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying to them about the kingdom of God. And trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning until evening. Acts 28, 31, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning Jesus. Paul will write to the Corinthians, uh, to the, sorry, to the church at Rome. And he will say to the church at Rome in the midst of discussions about questionable things he'll say to them look the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost this is Paul writing to the church of Rome about you know the church age he tells the church at Thessalonica I want you to walk in a worthy manner worthy of the God who called you into his own kingdom and glory and of course at the end the end does occur 
1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. And Revelation, as the book of Revelation unfolds and you got the seven trumpets, when the seventh trumpet is sounded, the seventh angel sounded, Revelation 11, there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. Preaching of the kingdom is part of the church. It's part of the gospel. It's part of the message. We are members of the kingdom of light. We have left the kingdom of darkness and entered into the kingdom of light. To preach the gospel is to preach the king. It is to preach Jesus as the king. The long-awaited king of the Messiah. But you still have to understand the kingdom. If we're thinking like the disciples, and sometimes we can, we can get this idea that, well, the kingdom doesn't actually arrive until finally Jesus returns for the second time. Or maybe even the millennium. And then we're not really into the kingdom until we get there. That would not be correct. The passage before us gives us the exact answer to what the kingdom is like. So let me read it again, and let's actually look at it. What is the kingdom of God like? Well, it's like a mustard seed, which a man took and threw into his own garden, and it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air nested in its branches. You're like, wow, boy, I'm glad you explained that. Ah, okay, we can go home now. We got that down. That's, that's, uh, hmm. What? Okay, so let's look at this. What exactly is Jesus saying? Well, he's saying this. The kingdom of heaven is like a little seed that grows into a big tree. This is imagery, by the way, which the disciples, the people in front of him, would have, would have understood. They would have understood this imagery because it, again, occurs in the Old Testament. It occurs back in Daniel. Daniel once more, Nebuchadnezzar, you will remember, he has his dream, and in a vision on his bed, he sees this huge tree, and the tree grows, and it grows to the point where the birds of the air nest in his branches, and all the beasts of the field come and lay down under it. And it's a huge tree. And of course, Daniel says to him, that is your kingdom. Your kingdom is going to be so great and so large and so prosperous that all the nations are going to come and, and be able to lodge in its branches, and they're going to be able to, to be underneath it. Of course, we know that the, it gets cut down, right? Ezekiel talks about how there is a twig that is going to be taken by God, just a little, a little sprig, you know, a little, a little bit of the, of the tree, and God is going to plant it. And he's going to pluck some of the, just the topmost off, and he's going to plant it. And Ezekiel 17, 23, on the high mountain of Israel, I will plant it, and it will bring forth boughs and bear fruit and become a stately cedar, and every bird... Of every kind will nest under it, and they will nest in the shade of its branches. So this concept that you're going to end up with this, this tree that's big enough for the birds to nest in, indicating that all of the nations, this is going to be massive. This is going to be a huge thing. So the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is like a mustard seed, which Mark says is the smallest of the seeds in the garden. Which, by the way, you might be like, well, wait a minute. We know of seeds smaller than mustard seeds. And, of course, we do. But the mustard seed was the smallest seed that you planted in your garden. Jesus didn't say it was the smallest seed on the planet. 
that were smaller seeds, but it's the smallest one that you would actually plant in your garden and cultivate. And it grew to be the biggest plant in your garden if it grew properly. It could get to eight feet high and 15 feet around. So it's huge. Big enough birds could actually sit in the branches. This is what the kingdom of God is like. It appears insignificant. If you hold mustard seeds in your hand, I mean, there's just tiny little things. Like, what in the world's ever going to come of this? But you throw it in the garden, and you let it do its thing, and the next thing you know, that small little seed grows into this tree big enough for birds to actually sit in its branches. It's astounding. The small thing becomes this great thing. The kingdom of God starts out small. It starts out with Jesus, who is the king, and You look at the life of Jesus, and if you look at it from a human perspective, you look at that and you think, you know, if you were going to be a king, this didn't really work out so well. Where where are the armies? Where's the money? Where's the property? Where's where's the libraries? I mean, where, where? You live in obscurity. You never left, except when you were an infant. Your parents dragged you down to Egypt. Other than that, you never left Israel. You traveled around in, you know, 30, 40 mile radius here of the place you were born. Where's the royalty here? And yet, as we all know, more books have been written about Jesus than any figure in human history. More money has been spent for the cause of Christ than for any other cause in human history. More people have given their lives than any armies. For Jesus, he started small. He started meek. He started lowly. He started humbly. And yet, he has transformed the world. The next one. He said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? Well, it's like leaven. Which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leaven. Now, three pecks of flour is three measures of flour. This is almost 50 pounds of flour. This is, this is not, you know, one little loaf of bread here. This is, you could feed 100 people with 50 pounds of flour. This is a lot of flour. And yet, the amount of leaven that you put into that would be, oh, maybe the size of a golf ball, you know, somewhere in that vicinity. Just a a small little lump of dough. But if you work it in there and then you just kind of stand back, even that huge 50 pounds of flour, just just give it a little bit. Just give it some time. Don't worry, that leaven, that leaven will make its way into that whole 50 pounds. Leaven, by the way, is, it's not evil. Uh, That's not what this stands for. Leaven is not bad or evil. Leaven is influence. That's what Jesus is talking about. Remember when he talks about beware the leaven of the Pharisees? He's talking about the teaching of the Pharisees. He's talking about them influencing you. Don't let them influence you. Don't let their legalism and their false teaching enter into your life because it'll like leaven. It'll just, it'll take off. Next thing you know, a little bit of legalism leads to all kinds of legalism. So Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is just like leaven. It starts out small and this is more hidden. Now the tree is big. The tree is, it's, you see it out there. It's large. The tree, you get these little seeds and then you get, then you get the big mustard tree. Leaven is different. Leaven kind of works on the inside. Leaven kind of comes in and it just does its thing. This is how the kingdom of God works. This is what Jesus is telling his, his disciples. What's the kingdom of God like? It's not like you think. It's not all big flash, lightning from the east to the west, and trumpets, and 
That will be the end of the kingdom. That will finally happen. It will. You can read. It's clear that that is the final manifestation. But it started way back. The kingdom of God has been growing and increasing. And we are members of it. We are part of what the kingdom is doing. And it's, in one sense, slow. In another sense, it just keeps going. You know how many times I've tried to stamp out Christianity? You know how many times I've been determined that's it? We're going, to, we're going to kill all of you. How many nations have tried that? How many places have said, we are getting rid of the Bible and that's it. You're not going to have one ever again. You know, you know how many times in history that's happened? Uh, I don't know about you. i got more Bibles than I know what to do with. And here we are standing here preaching the gospel. The world has tried to stamp out God and stamp out the gospel and stamp out the truth and stamp out the kingdom. But you know what? Like leaven, it just, it just, keeps, it just keeps spreading. It just keeps influencing. The truth is the truth. You may not see the leaven expanding. You know, if you have all that much dough, you, you know, you could stand there and stare at it, and it might occur to you it's a little bigger than it was a minute ago. But you kind of have to just walk away and then come back. This is how God works. Wycliffe Bible translators, they have worked very hard at reaching the entire world with not just the gospel, but trying to translate the Bible into the languages of all the earth. That is their stated goal. They work very hard at it. According to their calculations, there is at this moment about 7.8 billion people in the world. There are 3,415 languages that have at least some of the scriptures. Many have the whole Bible. That covers, out of that, out of that 7.8 billion people, that covers 7 billion of the world's population. That's how much the world population has some of the Bible in their own language. And many have the whole Bible in their own language. You know, that's astounding. Now, there are more languages, in fact, more than we've already got. There's another 3,945 languages they've identified that don't have any of the Bible in their language. But that only covers about 225 million people, which is a lot of people. I'm not trying to minimize that. But the fact is, we've almost reached the entire world's population and have translated the Bible into their language, except for small, isolated people groups throughout the world. The majority of the world, the vast majority, 90% of the world, have a part of the Bible, or if not all of the Bible, in their own language, in their own tongue. Okay, that's amazing. In the 1700s, 1600s, 1500s, the world was just a small little place. You know, the very idea that, you know, there are people all over the world. The world gets smaller and smaller and the gospel gets bigger and bigger. And like leaven, it spreads more and more and more. The kingdom of God continues to expand. When we carry out what God wants us to do, we need to remember that we are members of the kingdom. And you might think that your actions don't matter. You might think that what you're doing doesn't make a difference. You might think that, I don't know, the wicked seem to prosper and, and, and we don't seem to. Not like the wicked. 
You might look at your efforts to preach the gospel or to lead your Christian life or to be an honorable, godly person in the world, and you might think, what difference does it make? It doesn't seem to matter. Oh, it matters. Oh, it matters. It matters a lot. We are the light of the world. We are the ambassadors of Christ. Sure, the people you share the gospel with may not want to hear it, but that doesn't mean that it's not effective. England may have turned away from their, from their missionaries. They may not send them out anymore, but you know what? You can't get rid of what the foundation that was laid. This nation is working hard at getting off its foundation. But our laws, I mean, it's, it's right in our laws. It's in who we are as a people. They can walk away from it, but it's still there. They still stand on the foundation that was laid. We as a society, we as a world, as the gospel goes forward, as it, as it moves out, the truth of who God is continues to permeate. The world may hate it, the world may want to reject it, but the world can't stop it. Let me close by reading this admonition that Paul gives to the church at Corinth. It's an amazing verse. If you're ever frustrated with life, if you're ever like, does it matter? Does my Christianity really matter? Get this verse, stick it on a 3 by 5 card, put it on your mirror. Read this thing. Paul says this, do not go on making judgments before the time. Don't start evaluating now the effect your life is having. Wait until the Lord comes who will bring to light the things hidden in darkness and will disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. You may be working very hard at carrying out righteousness and at trying to do the work of God, and it may not seem to be working. God knows. God knows your heart. God is going to reward you for the efforts that you've made, and you really have no idea. We just don't know what our lives are doing and the influence we're having. So don't judge that. Just do right. Do righteous. Be a servant of God, and when the time comes, God will judge. And God may reveal that the reason why your efforts didn't seem to work quite so well is because there are people who are opposing you who had no idea. That's okay. God's still in charge. Don't judge yet. Just do right. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the amazing power of your word. The amazing power of the truth. May we be a people who are faithful to it. May we be a people who continue to teach it and live it and love your word. Lord, may we see your kingdom continue to grow and to prosper, not necessarily in your coming, although you clearly are closer to coming than ever. Lord, may we be faithful and true and see our own lives change. Help us, Lord, to continue to be faithful to your word. May you use our lives to further your kingdom and your work in this world. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.